Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Unable to get Democrats aboard on his now $1.85 or $1.75 trillion social, social spending plan, President Biden has left Washington uh, for an ambitious five-day trip that started in Rome today with a meeting at the Vatican with Pope Francis and later with Italian officials. Then he's heading to the G20 meeting and then the COP26 summit in Glasgow. In Washington, budget deliberations grind on as the chairman and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Generals Mark Milley and John Hyten, testify about China's potentially game-changing hypersonic weapon tests earlier uh, this summer. Milley called it a near uh, or a very close to a Sputnik moment, while Hyten, the man who's been spearheading new capability developments over the past two years, decried the Pentagon's bureaucracy that can't get out of its own way to move faster. That in particular is a damning and worrying indictment about where we stand on a capability we've worried about for more than 20 years. And we'll hear one of our regular panelists uh, funded hypersonic research uh, more than 20 years ago. Meanwhile, there are concerns in Washington whether the United States would even be able to stop Taiwan from taking Taiwanese islands off the Chinese coast much less stop China from taking Taiwan proper. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Gordon Adams, American University Professor Emeritus, uh, budget icon and Quincy Institute fellow, joining us uh, again after a little bit of a break. Gordon, glad to have you back on. Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Patrick, thanks again for joining us. Um, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, uh, again, returning back uh, to the program, and one of our mainstays, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of of the Association of the United States Army's uh, recent annual meeting and uh, trade show. Check out our new downlink podcast on space from our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, uh, taking a deep dive, uh, a deep and thoughtful dive into all things space and the Cavus Ships podcast with our own contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who uh, talk about all matters naval uh, this week, diving into the Navy's Arctic strategy. Uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us uh, again, especially so many of you returning back to the program after a brief hiatus. Michael, uh, Talk to us about where we are budgetarily, Uh, a lot of moving balls. Uh, The president's package is now much smaller, either 1.85 trillion or 1.75 trillion, depending on how you do the math versus uh, the 3.5 trillion or the 6 trillion uh, that Bernie Sanders, uh, the the Senate budget uh, chair, uh, started at. Uh, Republicans and some Democrats are already running against incumbents with ads saying that some members aren't living up to their promises, uh, in part because everybody was promising what was going to be in this measure that might not be in the final measure. Uh, And the president is now uh, abroad. We've got defensive liberations going on. Where are we? Well, we're nowhere. Uh, So I had a very uh, foreboding conversation with a senior uh, House Democrat earlier this week uh, where uh, the congressman said to me, you know, it's a mess. And then went on to say the legislative failure that is coming in the next two months will be epic. 
All right. And I think, you know, what we're going to talk about now, we'll kind of lay out where this is all headed. I mean, there was some slight progress uh, earlier this week with the progressives saying that, you know, initially they said that the Senate would have to pass uh, this Build Back Better plan, uh, the reconciliation package first uh, before they took it up. Uh, now this week, they were saying that the senators only have to promise uh, that they'll support the bill. Uh, and progressives are coming out saying that they would accept the president's assurances that all 50 senators would be on board uh, and not undermine the deal. Uh, but that didn't really pan out that way. So Biden, uh, President Biden came to the Hill yesterday to implore the House Democrats to pass the bipartisan infrastructure package before he left on his trip and uh, presented them with a framework that he said that he was confident the Senate would agree to. And, and that was not enough for them. And frankly, you know, the framework that was laid out yesterday, the people were seeing it for the first time. So it wasn't not only wasn't agreed to by the moderates in the Senate, it really wasn't agreed to by the progressives as well. I mean, I can't go through, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot that's in this package, but there's a lot that's not in the package, as you pointed out in, in your introduction. I mean, and I'll mention just three key things. I mean, one, obviously, the free college tuition fell out. Uh, the paid all paid family medical leave fell out. But Bernie Sanders drew a line in the sand earlier this week uh, to say that he is, he's going to insist that, uh, that the increase in Medicare benefits uh, be included in this bill. And he's wanted three things. He wanted increased benefits for vision, hearing, and dental. And this bill only includes uh, the hearing benefits. So, And the pay-fors seem to change by the day. I mean, there was um, right. you know, a billionaire's tax that lasted almost 24 hours. Uh, they decided not to increase corporate taxes, not to increase taxes uh, on, the, on the wealthiest back up to 39.6%. Now there's a new uh, 5% uh, surcharge tax on people who earn 10 million or more, another 3% surcharge and those making 25 million. I mean, they seem to be making this up as they go along. And then uh, they released a 2000 page draft bill yesterday. So as people go through this, they'll be picking out what's in, what's not in. And look, the progressives walk away yesterday triumphant that they stopped the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package where the rest of the Democratic caucus right now is furious about uh, what, what's going on. Um, and you know, now uh, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer has set another artificial deadline. I mean, two artificial deadlines have come and gone where they've not been able to pass this bill. Now he's saying a vote will happen on or before December 3rd. And as you know, December 3rd is the date that the CR expires. It's the day that the um, debt ceiling expires. And now they're putting this out there uh, as the deadline for a vote right. on infrastructure, which is a real problem for uh, national security because this is taking all the oxygen out of the room. There's no action on NDAA right now, and there's no action on appropriations because reconciliation is taking up all the bandwidth and all the attention of the leadership. And Senator Reid has been pushing very hard to get his bill to the floor, and Schumer uh, has been resisting. And, and I think Reid is kind of acquiescing. It says, you know, once there's a path forward in reconciliation, then they can get their bill to the floor. Well, there is no path forward right now in reconciliation. I mean, there was hope that NDA would be voted on this week. It did not happen. Uh, there's hope now that it could get up to the floor next week. But now, uh, over the last two days, a lot of people are skeptical that that will even happen. And then, you know, appropriations, I mean, we've only got about four more weeks to, to, to take care of that. And there are no negotiations going on between Republicans and Democrats and no negotiations going on between uh, the House and the Senate because we still haven't agreed on, on the top line. So I think uh, the likelihood of another CR uh, is very high. Uh, the question is, does do they CR short term into later into December, hoping to figure this out, or do they end up CRing into February, March? And the talk of CRs into February, March is is growing. 
uh, which is a, a very, very problematic scene, right? I mean, don't impose deadlines uh, on yourself that you know you're not going to be able to keep or complicate uh, things, right? We can we can d- debate about what's uh, gone right and wrong, and we're going to have that conversation because you're only with us for a brief period of time. We heard from uh, the chairman and the vice uh, chairman about the Chinese hypersonic test being a near uh, or very close to a Sputnik moment. Uh, John Hyten, I think, was absolutely right that we just can't get out of our own way in order to, to move uh, faster. How is this test being regarded by members of, of Congress, especially um, the savvy defense members? Um, is this something that serves to galvanize action up there that the United States has to move quickly? Because Dove Zakheim was funding this stuff in 2000, okay? So- you know, give me a break in, in 2001, right? Just give us a sense on where members stand on this. Uh, well, I think you're correct. And I think there's, there's, there's bipartisan uh, concern uh, on this. Obviously, of course, the Republicans haven't wasted any time in criticizing the administration on this. But, you know, Ruben Gallego, who is the subcommittee chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations uh, Subcommittee, you know, did come out earlier this week and saying that this launches a wake-up call for us to recalibrate uh, our, our uh, defense priorities. And, um, you know, he said we've been behind the eight ball when it comes to investments in hypersonics. And, you know, there is also, you know, some um, some blame, you know, being leveled by members of Congress on the intelligence community that we didn't know that this this was coming. Um, So and and I did have a conversation, too, with a senior staffer on the appropriations committee about this, uh, who did mention, too, that they were trying um, many years ago to increase funding for hypersonics on the Hill. And it was considered an earmark. And this was when the earmarks were becoming under attack. And there were certain senators who hated earmarks and were very critical of this funding and took it out. And this staffer reminded me, and this is a subject that we talked about a lot on the show, is that all good ideas don't reside just in the Pentagon. The Congress has you know, those ideas uh, as well and should uh, determine some things that should be funded that maybe the Pentagon doesn't want to fund at, the, at, that, at that time. But, you know, I mean, we've always felt that we had this, this, this huge technological edge over the Chinese. Now it's a rec- recognition that they've uh, caught up in many aspects and some aspects they're uh, exceeding us and we have to, um, you know, right in the ship. Michael, thanks very much for joining us for this uh, rapid fire uh, session. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Gordon, uh, as we said, welcome back. Um, are, are Democrats setting themselves up for the worst of all possible worlds, as, as we uh, heard a little bit from Michael, right? I mean, they so hype their plans that when they don't materialize, is this going to end up where they don't even get credit for what it is they do pass, right? That folks will see this as glass half empty, as, as some people even in the caucus are trying to portray this, as opposed to still something that will make a meaningful impact on a lot of people's uh, lives, right? I mean, what's the challenge here? Could could the Democrats actually end up doing something signature and it having, having it totally backfire on them uh, next year in the midterm elections? I think uh, we all tend to underestimate how hard this is. Uh, there's some sort of very essential things in play here. Need I restate the obvious? It's a 50-50 split in the Senate. It is a five vote margin in the House, which means the leadership is challenged not only within its own party, but it's challenged institutionally in terms of getting anything done. And we tend to underestimate the enormous difficulty of getting things done here. The country is divided. The partisan politics of the Congress are divided. And not surprisingly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. It's not an organized political party as well Rogers once said. The Democratic Party 
is divided. So this is an incredibly hard lift to begin with. Uh, and there's, you know, it's been a tough struggle. It's going to be a tough, tough struggle. Uh, it's not clear how it's going to come out. And I think everybody is uh, now hyping it in the extreme, expecting a level of discipline out of the Democratic Party that the Democratic Party has never had, certainly not in recent years. So it's hard to do this thing. Uh, are, are some Democrats, the progressives, disappointed that some of the things that they wanted in this uh, package not in the package? Yes. Uh, is the president more of a compromiser than some people want? Yes. Uh, is this an extraordinarily hard lift? Yes. Uh, it is challenged all the way around. So I'm a little bit, uh, how shall I put it, hesitant to say, oh my God, the Democrats are setting themselves up for failure. What does the Democrats mean here? What does the Congress mean here? Let's talk about how hard this is. So we're going to see, I think, the slow rolling, very frustrating process that we've seen going on here between the progressives and the moderates and the Democratic Party. Uh, we're going to see two members of the Senate continue to put their heels into the dirt and prevent things that might happen from happening because the margins in the Senate are what they are. Uh, so let's not underestimate how hard this is while we're thrashing around, trashing the Democratic Party for not, quote, having their act together, unquote. There are a lot of good things in this package. There are a lot of good things that have been left out of this package. As somebody in my age bracket, you know, vision, hearing, and, and dental care under Medicare would be a very nice thing to have. There's no question our medical system is totally screwed up. But it's a very hard push to get all those things in. In contrast, I think a bit to what to what Michael Hurston was saying, and I'm sorry he had to go, is, you know, I think these things in the end, there's a, there's a better than 50-50 chance that these things in the end are going to work out at a package that everybody can reason, be reasonably satisfied with. After all, if you think of the previous metaphor of its kind, which was the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act ended up not being the kind of effective reform of American medical system that everybody hoped for, very much a piece of sausage negotiated uh, with the Democratic Party and the Congress, very much something that has its weaknesses, nearly needs some fixing, but also has embedded a broader access to healthcare in the United States than we had seen before it was passed. So I, I think it's worth being breathing a little bit here and saying, you know, these things are going to happen. I think it's likely. They're going to be messy. The end of the year here is going to be one of the worst legislative crunches I think we've probably seen in our lifetime. I'm a little bit less concerned about the debt ceiling than some people are because tax receipts on the corporate side that come in on December 15th are probably going to carry Treasury over into January easily. Uh, which suggests that it's not going to be the same hair-burning, hair-raising fracas that we thought was going to exist uh, on December 3rd. It's not a drop-dead deadline for the debt ceiling. Uh, never has been. Uh, but we're going to see, and I think we're probably going to see another CR, either till the end of the year or somewhere into the February-March timeframe, where this seems to be worked. American politics is very, very difficult and very, very messy right now. And it's, it's going to be important, I think, to do a little bit of breathing and settle back and let people continue to work their way. Does that have immense implications for the Department of Defense? No, I don't think it does. I've never been one of those who thought CRs were a, 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 a game changer right. for the capacity of the Department of Defense. I do not think that is true. 
even the sequester in 2013 was not a game changer for defense. Defense is much more resilient, much better funded, much more capable of managing than a lot of the federal departments. They will be okay, even if the NDAA doesn't pass right away, even if the defense appropriations bill doesn't pass right away, defense department will be okay. Um, But the battle here partly is for the future of democracy, right? To show that we can uh, get centrists engaged, get legislation driven, Right. I mean, there were a lot of people uh, from the Republican side that voted for who vote. I mean, one of them is right here on the program. Right. Dov Zakheim voted for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, And Biden was trying to show that I can bring everybody together and and get legislation passed and and do it in sort of a centrist way. There are a lot of people who feel quite embittered by this who did vote for for Biden ultimately. And again, this was a battle for broader democracy. I don't want to over, you know, be overwrought with 19. 20s Weimar imagery, but but the left couldn't get its act together to stop the right, right? And the right is moving remarkably methodically in state after state after state to stop voting to make sure that it can pass, right? I mean, cynically speaking, a, a Republican, senior Republican friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, you know, said like, hey, the greatest thing about Delta is it delays the economic recovery, right? So I mean, that's what we're reduced to. It doesn't matter that people are dying. Ultimately, it's we can keep the economy weak, and, and now, right, I mean, there are serious inflation concerns, manpower shortages, uh, and the like. Dove, from, from your standpoint, is there kind of a broader challenge here as we, you know, I, I completely appreciate the difficulties and the challenges of passing legislation like this. But, you know, one of the problems of not being seen as an organized political party is you're not seen as an organized political party, whereas the other side has, has really done intellectual purity in a way that you know, puts democracy in question when we, we get back around to, to, to this in some respects. I mean, you know, what's, what's your sense on where we are? What does this look like? And what does this mean from a macro perspective? Well, Gordon's analysis is right, but that's only if you're an insider and you are a professor of political science, which Gordon was. Um, and if you are an inside the beltway person and understand the nuances, that's not where the American voter is. The American voter sees Democrats and Republicans. And if you recall, in 2010, Obama got his Affordable Care Act. And in 2012, he got clobbered and the, Cong- the Democrats got clobbered. Uh, it just seems to me that uh, unless the Democrats get their act together quickly, <clears throat> this is gonna basically help the Republicans at, at a minimum take the House. And it's not the Republicans. It's Donald Trump. He's behind a lot of what's going on in the Republican Party. And if the Republicans are able to take the House and take it because they point to Democratic disarray, Trump's going to be so damn triumphant, he'll get the nomination and the national nightmare could come back. Uh, It it seems to me that's the biggest challenge going on here. The economy is, is is recovering, but it's recovering with inflation. And that has created a real problem for the Fed because the Fed basically brought short-term interest rates all the way down and focused on longer-term interest rates uh, with the quantitative easing. And then it's sort of eased on the easing with what's called tapering. But now you're talking about inflation at four plus percent. Now, if this continues, by the way, the defense budget's gonna be worth less than people think it'll be Uh, and that the Pentagon thought it would be when it submitted the fiscal 22 budget. 
I also don't agree with Gordon on, oh, yeah, the DOD will be resilient. How will it be resilient? If you want to focus on the new technologies, you, you have to get past the CR. You can't have new starts unless you go to Congress and say, mother, may I, for anything over $10 million, which is crazy. We spend roughly $10 million every seven, six or seven minutes in the Pentagon. So, you know, there are some real downsides to a CR for DOD, and there are some real problems in the economy if this inflation goes up in the economy generally. So, and that's going to be another uh, brickbat that's going to be thrown at the Democrats because the Republicans are going to say, hey, look, we didn't have this kind of inflation. Now, this may be a specious argument, but voters buy into specious arguments all the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't have elected Trump. Dove, I want to go to you and I'm going to give uh, Gordon uh, another bite at this uh, apple. But is it going to take Glenn Youngkin's victory over Terry McAuliffe in Virginia to sort of focus Democrats, do you think? I mean, A, do you think that's a possibility? And B, is that what it's going to take to sort of be like, hey, hang on a second, this this is the big game and it's for real. And these little things actually matter more than maybe folks who are in the congressional hothouse recognize they are. Virginia is still a purplish state, and uh, that means that Youngkin could win. Uh, Trump will, of course, be Trump and make a big deal about it. I don't know that voters around the country are going to react all that strongly to that. I mean, the media will, for sure, um, both the print media, the TV, so on, and and social media. But I don't know that that's going to have that big of an impact. To me, the biggest question is the one we were just talking about. If the Democrats cannot get their act together as a party, they are in deep trouble in 22. I I should also point out that Adam Kinzinger apparently has just uh, of Illinois uh, has just uh, announced that he will not run uh, for uh, reelection, which uh, would indicate that the party is is purifying uh, itself. Uh, even as as we speak. Gordon, let me give you another bite at this apple before we go to Patrick, who's been patiently waiting to comment on all things uh, China. Go ahead, Gordon. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you and Dove more that democracy is at stake here. I think that's a bigger issue than what the Democrats may be able to put through the Congress. Uh, I mean, the real reality is it's all very well and good to talk up, jump up and down about the importance of bipartisanship and being able to negotiate across party lines and so on. But if the Republican Party, which is the, the, the villain here, is as captive as the, as the Republican Party clearly is to the forces of irrationality, to the cultish behavior of Donald Trump, it's not going to be possible to do an awful lot of things across party lines. Yes, there are a few things that might be doable and some of those have been achieved. Achieved. But it's not a game that even a compromiser like Joe Biden is going to be willing to play. It's not going to happen under these circumstances. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on your point of view. As for the DOD, uh, it seems to me perfectly clear that if you had programs that you wanted to do as new starts, you go to the Congress and the CR and they write the, ca- the capacity for you to do new starts. It's been done before. There's plenty of precedent here. So in terms of the procedure of the Congress, that's a totally workable issue. The bigger crisis, and this both uh, the, the Bob Woodward and Robert Costa book that just came out is dispositive on that. We've got a much, much deeper, larger problem in the American political system here uh, the capture of, a, of, of one party by a cult, the chaos in another party that it can't pull its act together, and a real risk, and I think Dove's right about this, to democratic control of the Senate, 
democratic control of the House. And should we begin to roll that rock downhill, we're going to have a real problem for democracy in the United States of America. It's a problem the Republicans in their own party also have to fix. Um, uh, agreed. But again, right, um, a lot of this, uh, if, if you have all three uh, arms, uh, right, you have the House, you have the Senate and the White House, the, the expectation was that this would have moved more uh, fluidly, more smoothly, as opposed to the left thinking it won exclusively because of the left and not because of an enormous number of people in the middle who were uncomfortable with Donald Trump and moved over, right? Joe Biden won by as, as narrow a victory, helped by Republicans who crossed the aisle, and those people now are feeling very frustrated, and there are a lot of people in the middle who are feeling very frustrated uh, with, with, with this uh, as well. And of course, the Adam Kinzinger news uh, drives uh, part of that message uh, Vago, home. Vago, let oh. me give you a, a, a personal anecdote on this. Um, my wife, Deborah, uh, is, happens to be a liberal Democrat, and she is so frustrated with the progressives, not because she disagrees with so much of what they want, but she's upset because they are totally undermining the Democratic Party in her view. And I think that she, in this case, represents in a way that I can't articulate because I'm a Republican. I think she represents a lot of feeling on the part, not just of moderate Democrats, but of Democrats who aren't progressives, which is not exactly the same thing as being a moderate Democrat. Right. Um, I, I uh, just last graph, because we, there's so much more that we've got to talk about. Uh, but yes, and I can say I know uh, dozens of people who fall into that category, uh, whether they're, uh, you know, what we would call classical uh, Democrats or Republicans that voted for Biden or independents uh, who may have voted for Trump and then were, uh, uh, you know, had a change in heart and they vote, and voted for Biden. Um, Patrick, uh, you've been very patient uh, while we've had this domestic political discussion. Um, you know, a very, very busy week, obviously, on China uh, and Taiwan. Um, what do we know about the Chinese hypersonic missile test? And let's start with the statement that Milley and Haiten have made and what it tells us that the United States seeing something bearing down on it has proved so singularly unable to move uh, some of these balls more, more quick. What do we know about the hypersonic missile test and our own ability to prepare for it? Well, Vago, when the chairman said, I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. It has all of our attention. I think he was trying to uh, speak to larger challenges that he's facing. So amid all of the important politics that um, Dove and Gordon in particular have so well um, sort of rehearsed, um, General Milley and the Pentagon in particular have to focus on maintaining deterrence today and tomorrow and, and maintaining the competitive edge for the United States Armed Forces in the long term, which is a really difficult task given the fact that, as Michael Hurston pointed out, we're falling behind in key technological areas. And, and so this hypersonic test, or maybe two tests in July and August, if the Financial Times is right, um, demonstrated, yes, technology that's been around, but has not been fielded yet by China. And now, now they're getting operational and they're showing how it can be possibly deployed as uh, an orbital bombardment system that could kind of strike down even over the North Pole. Um, that would circumvent all of our, potentially all of our defenses. Um, but it also um, just represents th something could be adapted for conventional anti-ship missiles in the Asia Pacific as well. If, if the Chinese are really perfecting these technologies. We don't know whether 
these were important tests or how accurate they were. Or, I mean, we do know about the 24 miles missing the target. I mean, I was in the Pentagon this week and they, they did say to me that there were some aspects of these tests that defied physics. And if it defies physics, maybe, maybe there's something not quite wrong, you know, right about these tests. So I think we need to be cautious from the outside, trying to piece together exactly what happened. Uh, instead, look at the bigger issues about, uh, again, the effect on deterrence and on long-term technological competition, because you had very important statements being made this week. The president of the United States had said recently that the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan if attacked. That strategic clarity, that moment of strategic clarity, and then walking it back to strategic ambiguity and the one China policy um, was probably no accident. And that's why people like Elbridge Colby have been writing in the Wall Street Journal based on his book as well uh, on the strategy of denial that um, the Pentagon needs to be more seized with the concern that China may escalate to outright force. So this is the period we're in right now in 2021, looking forward in this decade, the concern right now is that we're no longer just blunting Chinese coercion in the gray zone, but that they may actually leap toward uh, conventional deterrence, uh, conventional aggression, um, you know, the use of outright force. And that's what came up in this um, Center for New American Security Gaming Lab report that Chris Dougherty and others wrote out uh, this week, uh, the poison frog strategy, preventing the Chinese fait accompli across the, tiny, uh, the Taiwanese islands. And this deals with both the generic problem of offshore islands are very difficult to defend, um, whether you're talking about the Senkakus for Japan, um, Taiwan's offshore islands, or the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, for instance, um, but it deals with also the most plausible Taiwan scenario. That is, if Chinese Marines just show up on Dongsha Island, which is 270 miles southwest of the southern tip of the main island of Taiwan, um, and that could happen because I've been to Dongsha Island, and, and yes, Chinese ships go right by this big atoll, and the 500 or so Taiwanese soldiers on uh, garrisoned on uh, Dongsha or Pratis Island um, could easily be overwhelmed. So this is a real problem. And, and I think this uh, CNAS gaming lab report spells out that, look, it's a lot easier to deter than it is to compel. It's a lot easier to try to turn the island into a poison frog, which would be very costly for China to absorb, than to try to get it back if China actually grabbed it um, and, and made it a fait accompli. And so this is one of those complications. And this feeds into a larger set of issues about escalation. Well, would China really risk so much, both international opprobrium uh, from the world, from Europe, the United States, Asia, others, uh, by uh, using force, military takeover? Well, probably not. But go back to Bridge Kobe's warning, they might. Uh, and we should be concerned about that possibility. This could feed into nuclear escalation. A new report by Andrew Krepinevich coming out of Hudson Institute, modernizing the nuclear triad, decline and renewal, makes the case that we need to keep reinvesting in modernizing all three legs of the triad right. uh, to impose catastrophic costs on even major powers like Russia and China. The problem is that those costs of modernizing each leg, including the ground-based leg, uh, most controversially, is that it eats into conventional capability that could be the responsive force that we need to deter uh, the, the leap toward conventional aggression. And then all of these things lead into what I think General Milley is really worried about, which is the long-term technological edge. Um, the US national 
Counterintelligence and Security Center, the intelligence community this past week, warned industry and academe, uh, really without precedent that I can remember, that China and Russia are threatening our core technology capabilities in emerging technologies, AI, quantum, autonomy, semiconductors, and biotechnology. And in a significant report out of Georgetown University Center for Security and Emerging Technology, CSET, uh, it's called Harness Lightning, is an it's right. how Chinese military is adopting artificial intelligence. And it's very worrisome both about what they're doing, but also the fact that our export controls are not stopping the PLA from acquiring AI equipment. This is a, a much broader, more multifaceted problem. I mean, my concern with anybody uh, associated with this decision-making over the past many years is we've had a singular inability to be able to adapt and adapt very, very quickly uh, to um, uh, this peril that we've seen, perils, right? Uh, whether it was on AI, there's still no national AI policy. There's still no national quantum policy. Folks have been warning about all of these things for, for a long time, or at least the strategy or even an approach. Uh, and, you know, at best, uh, these are sort of nascent, right? Uh, so, I mean, when you just don't tend to these things over a long period of time, I, I think it's it's sort of absurd to get surprised. And I, and I should point out that the uh, CNAS piece uh, that you're talking about uh, was uh, by Chris Doherty, Jenny uh, Matushak, and, and Ripley Hunter. Uh, and I suggest uh, folks check it out. CNAS War Game shows U.S. needs to work with Taiwan and Japan to develop better deterrence to Chinese uh, aggression. And we should say that bridge, uh, uh, you know, bridge, uh, anybody who knows bridge knows that China looms largest on his lens, uh, as you know, and has even advocated that we should be doing, you know, redeploying capability away from Russia, and even from terrorism, uh, and was eager to conclude Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, no matter how it was done in order to be able to focus greater resources on the China problem. Let me let me just ask you, uh, and I, I want to go to, to both Dove uh, and and to Gordon on this. But Bridge makes the assertion that the Biden administration regards China as an economic and political threat, but not a military threat. You know the China team at the uh, in the administration as well as anybody I know. Is that is that true that the Biden administration somehow doesn't regard China as 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 a, as clear a military threat as it is? When the president of the United States says publicly, "We have a commitment to defend Taiwan if attacked," I think. The administration gets it, and I know the China team does. I think what Bridge does right in that article in the Wall Street Journal, he gets that wrong about the Biden administration, but I think his prescriptions are, are on the mark, which is Taiwan needs to do more of its self-defense, Japan needs to contribute more to defense, and the U.S. needs to be more ready. And I think those are all fair prescriptions. Gordon and uh, Dove, you guys have been watching this for a very long period of time uh, as as well. Uh, let me let me switch up. Dove, let me get your sense on this, because you were funding hypersonic uh, research when you were the comptroller at the Pentagon. Uh, walk us through what we've got to do next, uh, both from you and from Gordon, uh, as opposed to rehashing, OK, well, we've lost all this time. We, we've lost all this time. The question is, what do we need to be doing going forward? Uh, if this is a Sputnik moment, and I should uh, compliment to our audience that Dove has written an excellent piece in The Hill, Europe takes a stronger stand on Taiwan to counter China's aggressiveness, which, which I think is also an important point if you will uh, make that, especially as the president uh, goes uh, to Europe. Dove, start us off, and then Gordon, I want to get your take. Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, I think that uh, the, the so-called Sputnik moment has gotten the attention uh, of not just uh, General Milley in the United States, 
uh, but of the Europeans and uh, obviously the Japanese as well, as, as uh, both Bridge and Patrick uh, have pointed out. Um, there are some things that can be done. I mean, the first thing is what's what was interesting to me about that hypersonic test is that the Chinese denied it, denied that it was a hypersonic test. Now, if they wanted to simply threaten Taiwan or threaten us, they wouldn't have denied it. It, it's, it, it tells me that they're still nervous about, you know, the international community, their standing in the community. And that's where uh, I think the allies come in in a very, very big way, in, in actually two ways. The first is, I think Bridge is wrong about Russia. Russia is a longer term threat. I've argued that on, on this particular podcast as well in the past, but the allies could do more vis-a-vis -vis Russia and make it easier for us, not so much to take stuff out of Europe. We don't have that, all that much in Europe, but to focus on China militarily. That's number one. Number two is China needs trade with Europe. It needs that, that economic relationship. It's trying to penetrate Europe. And that's where what's just happened in Europe with the EU commission and the high and the, their foreign minister uh, issuing what they call the strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, which basically said, we care about this. And not only that, the European Parliament went even further and essentially said, we need political relations with Taiwan in some way and not just economic relations, which the European Commission has already talked about. Now, the Chinese are furious about this. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, already attacked it. But that's a major signal that the Europeans are beginning to realize that an attack, even on a, uh, an island, is a threat to them because it's a threat to democracy. They care so much about democracy, much more, frankly, than about the United States, that they'll come in on this. That could worry the Chinese big time. And so it seems to me there are some things we can do apart from accelerating our, uh, our high-tech capabilities. And by the way, that's another issue. We have a tendency, and I saw this in both my tours of the Pentagon, to believe that we're always ahead of everybody in high-tech. That's simply not true. It's not true vis-a-vis -vis our allies. It's not true vis-a-vis -vis our enemies. And we need to take the risk about leakage, because it's leaking anyway, and do what we've already just done with the Australians and the Brits, which is to expand our cooperation in high tech with other high tech allies and friends like the French, whatever you think of them, like the Swedes, like the Finns, <laughs> who have this kind of capability, because that'll lock them in with us vis-a-vis -vis China. It'll worry the heck out of the Chinese. And I still think that worrying Mr. Xi is going to have an effect because the last thing he wants is for the people in his party who right now are following him lockstep to decide to do what the Soviets did to Khrushchev and, and which was essentially push out their strongman. It's a nightmare that every strongman has and we have to do everything we can to make that nightmare more realistic. Gordon, I, I wanna get your uh, take on this and what do you think, and whether you think the president can be uh, as uh, effective as he should be, given that there is a little bit of po political uh, right that he has not accomplished as much as he should domestically. I always, I, I don't really draw as firm of a line. I think Joe Biden can still be effective, uh, but more broadly, what do you think we should be doing strategically and what do you think uh, he should be doing while uh, he's on this uh, five nation 
uh, the five day and very important trip. The issue with respect to China is an illustration, I think, of the larger dimension uh, of the problems of American statecraft right now. We, we have significant defense investments. Our hypersonic investment has not been theoretical. It's been practical, real world. Yes, it was a test failure recently, but it wasn't hypersonics. It was a launch vehicle. Uh, we know that we have a program. Uh, whether we're ahead or behind of the Chinese is kind of secondary to the fact that both we and the Chinese are investing in hypersonics. But here's the thing. The thing is that, uh, as has been true probably throughout history, your military capability needs to be matched by an economic and a diplomatic strategy. You know, a national strategy towards China is what is essential here. Uh, and there, what my thinking is at this point is that this is a very good opportunity, I think, for the president and the China team uh, and the foreign policy establishment to seize the moment for to jujitsu this moment into a broader diplomatic strategy. And it's complex uh, and it needs to be undertaken. Uh, the president's trip to Europe uh, that's happening right now offers an opportunity to begin to design that strategy. They're going to be talking about uh, climate issues. They're going to be, where the Chinese are directly involved. They're going to be talking about pandemic issues, which are directly involved with the G20. They're going to be talking uh, about European defense in the meeting with President Macron. Uh, and they're going to be talking about China. And the opportunity here, I think Dove's right about the move amongst the European allies on this point. Uh, is very real. And there is now, I think, an opportunity to, com to combine a crafted economic strategy for dealing with China in the international world, for a diplomatic strategy that opens up other windows. You know, it's uh, a, 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 as often as it is put down, the fact is that arms control during the 60s, 70s, 80s period bought the Americans a lot of security at a reduced cost because it was combined with military capability. So developing a broader strategy rather than harping on, now we go to invest in hypersonics and race with the Chinese, it's got to be embedded in a broader sense of strategy and diplomacy needs to be an important element. So I think the president and the China team have a big opportunity here to, to begin to craft a broader and multi multilateral strategy with the European countries and countries like Australia and the, and, and the AUKUS agreement that was done recently, all of which are involved in the diplomacy and the potential for restraining behavior in the security interests of all. Very well said, uh, Gordon. Uh, and I, I noticed your little bit of uh, laughter. I, for one, am a very, very strong uh, fan of, of France and the very, very important role that France uh, can play certainly uh, in in the Pacific uh, and and indeed in uh, in in global security affairs as as a as a leading uh, voice and a and a strong democracy. Patrick, uh, administrate and also a, a nation that has enormous military capability and technological prowess as well. And I I mean that for our British allies as well as Germans and and uh, Swedes. Uh, and and everybody else. Um, Patrick, uh, is this uh, trip a good opportunity for the administration to be reinforcing, uh, again, the, the the China message and the urgency of standing up to China, especially since uh, the Chinese leadership, uh, obviously, uh, nor the Russian leadership will be at the COP26 uh, conference? It's a perfect opportunity, especially given the absence of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, and uh, not only the positive issues on climate change, but uh, as um, Gordon was saying, uh, to deal with uh, global trading system and rules, um, digital trade and digital governance in particular, 
that may be the ripest area for the U.S. to lead a multilateral agreement. Um, but it's setting the standards on uh, dealing with China in general and dealing with aggression. So I think I think this is a good moment, even if the president uh, had to go to Rome and Glasgow without the legislative victories that he was hoping to have. Two questions, Patrick. Are Taiwan's islands defensible at this point, or are we at a fait accompli moment? Right, because there's a very, very powerful sentiment that the United States nor anybody else will fight for Taiwanese territory. We've heard from the president uh, a, a, a different message. Uh, and obviously, the American people is more sensitized to this. But are we sort of past the point of no return, or is that too gloomy a forecast? It's too gloomy a forecast. I mean, we have to take uh, China's motivation seriously. They are serious about uh, their core interests. Um, at the same time, we recognize that deterrence is very much about uh, sort of uh, ag aggressor uh, perceptions. And, and we can affect China's uh, perceptions about uh, the ability to take those islands by force uh, or coercion by raising the costs and by uh, imposing impediments into to taking them. And I think that's where international support um, that uh, Dov Zakheim was talking about, um, trying to provide ready forces that uh, the CNAS report talks about having ready to go and exercising that capability so that it's apparent uh, and working as well with the diplomatic uh, discussions with China that, that uh, Gordon was essentially uh, alluding to, to, to make sure that China has more benefit from not taking those islands than from uh, going toward a short, sharp war, at least what they would think would be a short, sharp war. We want to make sure they understand that it wouldn't be uh, short, it wouldn't be sharp, and it wouldn't be decisive in their advantage, or at least they should have doubts about effective control. And, and you think that uh, even taking a small island that's Taiwanese, that's off the Chinese coast, is the same thing as an attack on the mainland? Because that, I think, is a question that people are asking, right? Do, do we, do we I mean, in my view, it's Taiwanese territory. It doesn't matter what part of the territory gets seized, just like there's no small part of Estonia uh, you could take, uh, for for example, if you're if you're Russian, is, is that where the line lies? And that's yes, that's where the line is. And that's whether we're talking about Taiwan's offshore islands or whether we're talking about the Senkaku Islands or part of uh, you know the Philippine offshore islands. Um, that's what we want China to believe, at least to have doubt that uh, that's not the case. So that's where the uh, deterrence will be maintained. And I believe we have work to do, but I think that's achievable because we're talking about preserving the peace that exists now rather than trying to have them undo something that they've already done. And uh, Dove, uh, last word, uh, nuclear negotiations uh, are ongoing uh, with uh, Iran, EU and Iranian diplomats meeting uh, this week. Where do we stand in this dance as Iran still continues to improve its nuclear capabilities thanks to the last administration's decision to walk away from the Iran nuclear deal? Well, first of all, we're still dancing, uh, but we may be dancing with ourselves because we really don't know where President Raisi is going to come out. Uh, they, they, they're talking a little bit about reaching some understanding next month. Next month starts in two days time. So uh, who knows where this will end? What is uh, concerning, I think, uh, certainly for the United States, uh, is that the uh, Israelis are not only talking about once again, training for an attack on Iran, but putting special monies aside in their budget in order to fund additional uh, exercises and other uh, activities 
with that aim in mind. Now, the Israeli strategy all along has been to drag us into a war with Iran. And uh, so far, thank goodness, we've resisted that, whether it was a subtle effort uh, or a in the case of Netanyahu, a not so subtle effort to drag us in. But I think that's the real worry here, that uh, if there's no progress on a deal with the Iranians, uh, the Israelis uh, could go off half cocked and, if, and with the assumption uh, that somehow we'll get brought into this thing. And that's the thing we need to worry about. And uh, the only way we can manage that is by not merely negotiating with the Iranians, but doing it in a way that allows us to tell the Israelis, look, uh, it's not worth it for you to try anything. We're getting somewhere with these people in Tehran. And oh, by the way, don't necessarily assume we'll come in. Uh, and and uh, Gordon, we've, we've had a robust conversation. You get the last 20 seconds, go ahead. Well, I take very seriously the problem of democracy at stake here. We've talked about things the president can do on a trip. That's fine if he can't deliver at home. We've talked about the problems in the Republican Party, the problems in the Democratic Party. But fundamentally underlying this is a challenge to the American political system. And I think the Chinese see that and they think it's a sign of weakness. I think the Europeans see that and think it's a sign of the inability of the administration to stick to commitments that it might want to make because they, it's almost impossible to deliver consensus inside the United States. And it's a challenge to anybody who worries about what the Congress is doing but is not paying much attention to what's happening at the state and local level to basically fundamentally undermine the very democracy that we've had in this country for over 200 years. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. And it is a far, far, you know, domestic division and extremism is a far, far bigger challenge than actually the Chinese are, because one destroys American democracy. The Chinese couldn't care less whether we're democratic or not. They just want whatever it is that they want. Guys, thanks very, very much. Uh, really appreciate it. Terrific conversation. As uh, always, hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.